All right, let's, uh, let's ask the Lord's blessing upon our study this evening. Please stand with me. Heavenly Father, we ask that thou would bless thy word, thou art ever faithful and true to thine own word. Uh, we may, Lord, be, uh, because of our uh, inadequacies and insufficiencies and weaknesses and sins, may not be faithful, but Lord, thou art ever faithful to thine own word. So bless now thy thy word to our understanding and and give to us a heart uh, to hear it and to walk in obedience to it. Forgive us and cleanse us, Lord, of our sins, wherein we have disobeyed thee. Grant to us, Lord, a, a broken and contrite heart that we might turn from our sins unto Christ, uh, who is a, a gracious and merciful Savior, uh, whose arms are always open and, and always welcome us to come unto him uh, with our burdens, our sins, and to cast them upon him. Thank thee in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text this evening is from John 8, verses 27 through 32. John 8, 27 through 32. They understood not that he spake to them of the Father. Then said Jesus unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. And he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone. For I do always those things that please him. As he spake these words, many believed on him. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. By way of review from the previous study, John 8, 21 through 26, Jesus had declared to the religious leaders there in the temple, that's uh, beginning with chapter 8, verse 2, uh, all the way through this chapter, we're still in the same setting, the Lord Jesus uh, speaking uh, to those gathered in the temple. This is uh, basically the same day uh, that the woman taken in adultery, uh, that he dealt with that situation earlier in John 8. And so this is a long uh, discourse by the Lord Jesus, but just again to uh, help you understand the context that we've not really moved the location, the same location, the temple, and we've simply moved, there have been various questions that have been raised to the Lord Jesus to which he responds. And so we continue. Uh, just from last study, uh, Lord Jesus had uh, declared to the religious leaders 
and to any who were in the temple at that time, that they would all die in their sins. Why? Well, he gave two reasons. Because, number one, because they were from the world and not from above. That is, Jesus is saying, you not only need an earthly birth, you need a heavenly birth. That's what uh, Jesus told Nicodemus uh, in John chapter 3. That uh, Nicodemus, you remember, needed to be born again. Literally, when it says born again, literally born from above. He needed to have a birth from above. Not simply a birth here upon earth, but a supernatural birth. Not just a natural birth, but a supernatural birth. And so he needed to be regenerated. He needed to be born again, born from above. And so the Lord Jesus says in verses 21 through 23 of John 8, by way of review, then said Jesus again unto them, I go my way and ye shall seek me and shall die in your sins. Whither I go, ye cannot come. Then said the Jews, Will he kill himself? Because he saith, Whither I go, ye cannot come. And he saith unto them, Ye are from beneath, I am from above. Ye are of the world, I am not of this world. So unless they have a supernatural birth, uh, they will, in fact, die in their sins. So that's uh, the first reason why. Uh, they will die in their sins. The second reason why they will die in their sins uh, is that because they do not believe that Jesus was the great I Am, that he was the Son of God. In John chapter 8, verses 24 through 26, Jesus said, I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins. For if ye believe not that I am he, literally, that I am, ye shall die in your sins. Then said they unto him, Who art thou? And Jesus saith unto them, Even the same that I said unto you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge of you, but he that sent me is true. And I speak to the world those things which I have heard of him. So the second reason is, Unless you believe that I am, in other words, Jesus is saying, unless you believe that I am the one who revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And again, uh, these are uh, two reasons very clearly stated by the Lord, that they would die in their sins. In the passage before us this evening, in verses 27 through 32, Jesus is, as we said, still speaking in the temple. He's still speaking to the religious leaders, Jewish religious leaders that are in the temple, and to the multitude that are gathered there. And so Jesus now continues his teaching. In verse 27, they understood not that he spake to them of the Father. So when Jesus said in verse 26, I have many things to say and to judge of you, but he that sent me 
is true, and I speak to the world those things which I have heard of him. And verse 27 continues that thought by saying, they understood not that he spake to them of the Father. They didn't understand who it was that had sent Christ. Which again, we, we go through our mind and say, how could they not? He's explained. He's, he's actually said on different occasions that the Father is the one who sent him. And if they don't believe um, him, they're not going to believe the Father. And so this is perhaps a, a puzzling thing that we learn here. How is it they did not understand that the Father is the one who sent Christ? When the Lord has said that to them. Well, perhaps we can suppose that this is a, a different group of people than were gathered on different occasions before this time. Remember this was still the, at the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, so there's a heavy influx of people coming from not just uh, Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles, but, but also coming from different parts of the world. And perhaps they did not hear those previous times that Jesus spoke about the Father having sent him. And so now they're questioning in their mind because they're hearing it for the first time, or at least this group of people is hearing it for the first time. Uh, who is he talking about who has sent him? At least that it gives some explanation as to why they might ask that question. Uh, they were up in arms, uh, a group of them were up in arms to kill him because he said he was the son of God, making himself therefore equal with God back in John 5, but that was long before this particular event in John 8. John 8, 28 says, Then said Jesus unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. So Jesus, at this point in verse 28, when he says, when ye have lifted up the Son of Man, lifted him up in what way? Well, upon a cross. Crucifixion. So the Lord Jesus is prophesying and saying that they, the Jews, are going to have a part in lifting him up and crucifying. Now, obviously the Romans did as well. Uh, they, were the act, they were the ones who literally... Uh, took the cross, put it into the ground, nailed Jesus to the cross, it was the Romans. But the Jews uh, were the ones who pushed Pilate and said that when Pilate wanted to release Barabbas and set Jesus free, it was the Jews that, that uh, said no, crucify him, crucify Christ. They did not want Jesus released. And so this 
they in fact said, uh, let his blood be upon us and upon our children. And so again, that was the case. And in all of the sermons, uh, many of the sermons, I should say, in the early chapters of Acts, when the apostles are speaking to the Jews, uh, they actually say to the multitude of Jews that are gathered to whom they're preaching and teaching, uh, that they are responsible for having put Jesus to death. Uh, they share in that responsibility, not solely responsible, but they share in that responsibility. I, I dare say we all share in that responsibility because Jesus went to the cross to die for his elect. It was our sins as his people that sent him to the cross. Uh, because of our innate hatred of Christ, and his, who he is, and uh, what he preaches and teaches. Um, by nature, we would have been right along saying, crucify him, crucify him, apart from God's grace. That's, that's again, the very nature of man. And so, though we, though we see the blame and responsibility of the Jews, it, and we don't want to shy away from that for fear of being accused of being anti-Semitic. Nevertheless, uh, we have to be honest, that's what the Bible teaches. But we have to also be honest, no, it's also the Romans and it's also us uh, by way of in, uh, implication and inference. And so when we want to uh, place responsibility, let's again, not merely place it upon the backs of the Jews. Yes, they have a responsibility, but again, there are other parties, including ourselves, uh, that have a role in that as well. But as we said, Jesus prophesies that the Jews would be guilty partakers in his crucifixion. And after his crucifixion, and probably including his resurrection, Jesus says, and Verse 28, when ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am He. In other words, after His crucifixion, and probably included in that is after His resurrection as well, ye shall know that I am. Again, that I am who I said I was. That they would not be able to, in their own minds, in their own hearts, they would not be able to deny who Jesus has said he was all along in his ministry. He talked about it, he prophesied he would be crucified, not just to his apostles, but here, you know, to the multitudes. And that he would be raised the third day as well. That wasn't, uh, again, in fact, that's why the Jewish leaders put uh, a guard around the tomb was because they said he would be raised on the third day and they didn't want to, uh, that to happen, obviously. They didn't want uh, there to be any chance of that happening. So they, they knew as well what Jesus had said by way of his death and by way of his resurrection. And so here Jesus says, you will know that I am 
who I said I was, that I am, the great I am. You'll know that I am the Son of God. That doesn't mean, though, that they received him. This is the sad, sad part about this. Again, all the miracles and all that Jesus taught was to be confirmed by his crucifixion and by his resurrection. He based everything upon his crucifixion and his resurrection in his ministry. If he was not crucified and if he was not raised from the dead, then, you know, he's just a, a, either a lunatic, a liar, um, uh, someone like that. He, he's, not, he's not who he said he was. But if he was crucified and if he was raised from the dead, as actually happened and as actually occurred, then he was all that he said he was. And the entire Bible, which speaks of Christ, is his word as he said it was. And the Bible is therefore true. The Bible is to be believed. It is to be received as authentic truth because Jesus said that if he was not raised and if he was not, if he was not crucified and if he was not raised, basically, don't believe him about anything he taught. So everything hinges upon Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. Somebody wants to tear not only you know, Christianity, but the Bible apart and dismiss it. All they have to do is dismiss the crucifixion and the resurrection. Not just dismiss it, but prove that it's not true. It's easy to, just in one's mind to dismiss it, but uh, to be able to demonstrate that it's not true uh, is, again, a task that many have sought uh, to do, but have been unsuccessful in being able to demonstrate that it's not the case. There's too much evidence, both within the Bible and outside of the Bible, uh, by historians living at that time, uh, saying that Jesus was an authentic historical figure, he was crucified, and he claimed to be raised from the dead. His followers said that he was raised from the dead. So those are, that's not just something that's found in the scripture. That's uh, found in history, uh, historians uh, at that time, even by Josephus, a Jewish historian. But I want to just elaborate on this point. Uh, then shall ye know that I am he. In what sense would they know that he was who he said he was? In what sense? How many people, quote unquote, know? Know in their heart of hearts that what Jesus teaches is the truth, but do not receive it. I believe many, many people know in their hearts, but they will not receive it. They will continue to resist. They will continue to rebel, though they know that he is who he said he is. 
And they resist and they rebel to their own condemnation. They suppress, the Bible says, that the wicked suppress the truth that they know in their hearts, they suppress it in unrighteousness. It's like a pressure cooker that's building up steam and steam and wants to blow and hear people rather than uh, allowing the truth of it to blow up in their lives, uh, you know, to, to be a realization. They're, they're weighing it down. They're sitting on it. They're keeping the truth within that uh, pressure cooker. And uh, on the final day, it is going to blow up. And they will know uh, that what he has said was indeed what they should have re received. How sad is the stubborn will of man. The Jews at that time knew that Jesus was the Son of God, and yet they didn't receive him. And again, we can explain this, that apart from God subduing our rebellious will and giving us a new willingness, not one of us, not one of us would come to Christ with all the knowledge that we've been taught. If we've been taught within a Christian family from the time that we remember about Jesus, unless we are renewed in our wills, we will continue to reject it, even though it's been taught to us from the time we're very young. Unless God gives us a willingness, unless he subdues our rebellious will, none of us will come to Christ. None of us will believe it, even though we have been taught these things, even though we may have within uh, our hearts that, that kind of conviction that says, yeah, this, this is true, but I don't want to submit to it. I don't want to do what Jesus wants me to do. I don't want to bend the knee to Christ. I want to be the Lord of my life. Well, praise God for his sovereign love and his grace that conquers and subdues us to himself because otherwise none of us, none of us would be willing uh, to serve him, to love him, to trust in him, to obey him. And so let's be clear here. Sinners do need knowledge of who Christ is. They do need knowledge of the gospel, but sinners don't just need knowledge of Christ. They need a new willingness they need a new heart. John 1.13, which was a very early study in the Gospel of John, says, which were born, speaking of those who are born again, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And uh, we understand from this passage that we're not born again of blood. That is, we're not, we're not born again by way of our bloodline, by way of our descendants. Just because we're the children of believing parents doesn't make us born again uh, simply because we uh, are born of blood. Um, the Jews laid claim to that. We're the children of Abraham. Uh, Isaac and Jacob, uh, and they thought that they had it made because of their blood lineage to Abraham. But that's not the case, and it's not the case for any of us either. So John 1.13 says, Not of blood are we born again, 
Uh, secondly, not of the will of the flesh. That is, not by way of our own natural will are any of us born again. None of us are born again by way of our own natural will. Why? Because our will is bound. Our will is rebellious against God. Um, Romans 3.11 says, No one seeks after God. No one chooses God uh, without God giving them the willingness to do so. Without God giving them the grace causing them to be born again so that they have that willingness. And then third, it says uh, that we're not born again of the will of man. That is, not by, the, uh, by way of the will of others who perform perhaps uh, religious acts for us, to us, like ministers or priests. That's not how we're born again. By way of uh, what ministers and priests do for us baptism for example uh, we're not born again by by way of the administration of water by a minister or a priest uh, that's not how we are born again but what is the cause of us being born again in john 1 13 which were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of God. By God's will, we're born again. Not the will of man, but by the will of God, who sovereignly works. Philippians 2.13 says that it's God that works within us, both to will and to do his good pleasure. He works that within us. So we can't take any credit or glory to ourselves. All glory belongs to the Lord Jesus. Verse 29, uh, John 8, 29. Jesus continues, And he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. So the Lord Jesus... <clears throat> Uh, again, very clearly identifies who sent him as the Father. He that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone. And we, we need to understand, if, if the Father has not left the Son alone in what he suffered in all, during his ministry, and if we are united to Jesus Christ by faith, um, he can no more leave us alone then he could leave his son alone. Of course, there is a special union, uh, a, a divine union between the father and the son that's not true of us. We're not, we don't partake of the same substance, um, essential substance of deity uh, with the son as the son partakes of with the father. But we are united to Jesus Christ by faith. We are covenantally united and the Spirit of God dwells within us. And so there is a union with Jesus Christ, nevertheless, and so we are never left alone. No matter how far we may think that we are from God or how far God is from us uh, as those who believe and trust in him, we're not 
we're not always going to sense that closeness of the Lord with us uh, every moment throughout the day of the week of the month of the year and nevertheless what we have to focus on is not how we feel but what we know to be true that he has promised he will never leave us nor forsake us and if we do not again go back to those promises and believe and trust those promises we will be like up and down uh, all the time we'll be like on a roller coaster continually in our spiritual walk if we do not learn to rely upon his truth rather than upon our feelings we've got to bring our feelings in tow behind the truth. Our feelings ought not to be that which leads the truth, but the truth should be leading our feelings. Because if our it's not the truth that is leading our feelings, we can be led by way of our feelings in all kinds of errors. And so the truth of Jesus Christ, that, that which he has revealed in his word must lead our feelings. But the Lord says that the Father has not left him alone. And that was a great comfort to the Lord Jesus. And uh, then he says in verse 29, at the very end of that verse, For I do always those things that please him, that please the Father. So Jesus in this verse is emphasizing his uh, eternal divine unity with the Father. The Father and the Son basically as uh, therefore uh, the Father and the Son are the example of unity uh, to which we who are united to the Father and the Son by faith that kind of unity is what we ought to pursue. Okay. Now, the unity between the Father and the Son is, as we already have pointed out, is, is a divine unity as to essence, as to the divine essence. So there is a unity that, that is true of the Father and the Son that we cannot partake of. Uh, we'll never have uh, that essential divine essence of, of God. Um, we, we do have... Uh, again, God dwelling in us, but that's different than saying that we partake of his divine essence. When it says in, in uh, uh, Peter's epistle that we are partakers of the divine nature, it doesn't mean that we are partakers of the essential nature of God as the Father and the Son are, are partakers of the same nature. It's talking about, again, uh, the divine nature there being uh, the, uh, the moral, the moral uh, aspects of, uh, of the new nature that God gives to us. We were made in the image of God, and we are renewed when we are born again. We are renewed in the image of God, in knowledge, righteousness, holiness. Uh, we are renewed in the 
uh, in that sense, partakers of the, of the divine nature, renewed in the image of God. The image of God, as a result of the fall of man, uh, has uh, been corrupted in every way, uh, broken uh, in every faculty and aspect. Sin is, has uh, affected every part of our being, but when we're born again, uh, we are renewed by God's grace in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And so that's to be a partaker of the divine nature. But I want to just again emphasize that the unity between the Father and the Son is not a diversity of mind or judgment in regard to the truth. The Father and the Son do, do not disagree as to what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is error and error. Uh, that unity of essence also carries with it a unity in, in, in that which is faithful and true. And so if our unity is to, in a creaturely way and in a renewed way, by way of uh, the renewal of the image of God within us, if we are to mirror that unity of, of God, we can't uh, be promoting, it's okay you know, uh, for us to simply uh, agree in one or two or three or four uh, doctrines and then we just disagree in everything else. We need to be pursuing unity in the truth and that's why we have confessions of faith and creeds uh, Confessions like the Westminster Confession of Faith, and the Catechisms, the Larger and Shorter Catechism, and the Solemn League and Covenant. That's why we have in history renewals of those faithful covenants available to us and a directory for public worship and a, a, a presbyterial form of church government. That's why we have a judicial testimony, uh, uh, the Act Declaration and Testimony. So that we, again, in history, uh, can see that measure of truth to which the church has attained. And it's a summary of God's truth found in scripture. And we, as, as believers, are saying we hold these particular truths, uh, not just one or two, but this volume of truths to be truths that we embrace and that uh, those who have reached that level of sanct corporate sanctification in the church have reached and we want to again follow in their paths in affirming the same truths as they have affirmed because we see ourselves again we understand ourselves as being uh, one uh, with them uh, ecclesiastically uh, we are their posterity that flow from them. We, we uphold, uphold the, the same things. We believe the same things. Uh, we are a covenanted and reformed Presbyterian church uh, that are seeking to live according to the attainments that our forefathers reached. And by God's grace and God's time even to uh, pursue further reformation in areas that they did not pursue to pursue other reformation in even other areas and so that's that's our goal and so again unity uh, is not an idea of, uh, we, we can't 
uh, frame unity as, as diversity, disagreeing with one another about the truth. That, that's a strange unity. They say, well, we're, we're in unity, but yet we, we don't agree on, on all of these different uh, uh, truths that are, that are uh, uh, debated and, and uh, are controverted uh, be, between churches that separate all of these churches. So when Jesus says, I, in verse 29, I do always those things that please him, don't we see in those words uh, the delight of the Lord Jesus uh, to do the will of God, do the will of his Father, when he says, I do always those things that please him? Is Jesus saying that um, uh, in a way that would communicate he doesn't want to do the things that God has called him to do, he doesn't want to do the will of God, or is he communicating he finds that to be his greatest delight to do all that the Lord has called him to do, to do the will of God, to do that which pleases his Father. Of course, there was in Jesus during his earthly ministry an unparalleled delight and willingness and ability to always do the will of God. For he was not only fully man, but he was fully God as well. None of us, therefore, can uh, fully match the delight, the willingness, and the ability of Jesus to do the will of God. None of us can reach that uh, ability and delight and, and desire. We must, therefore, we must, therefore, as God's people, uh, pray, and we must strive by God's grace to please the Lord, to walk according to the example of Christ, whose delight it was to obey his Father. You see, how we know we're growing in our Christian faith is that this is one way that we know we're growing in our Christian faith is that we're not simply doing God's will because we know we are to do it, but we are also growing in our delight to do God's will. Because, again, our heart is being transformed. Our heart is being changed. And so, doing God's will that he's revealed in Scripture is always a duty that is ours. But when we are growing beyond mere duty to love to do the will of God, to love to please him, to delight in doing his will, to bring him pleasure and bringing him pleasure brings us pleasure. That's how we know that we are truly growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ, that we delight to do the will of God. We're becoming therefore conformed to the image of Christ. We're becoming more and more like Jesus. 
who delighted to do the will of God. He's our example. And we're to walk in his steps according to 1 Peter 2.21. Verse 30 says, John 8.30, As he spake these words, many believed on him. Once again, we find that uh, many, and this isn't the first time that we've seen these words, and it won't be the last time, many who heard what Jesus said are said to have believed in him. They were convicted at some level and professed faith in him as Messiah. But we have reason to think that this does not mean that they believed with a saving faith when it says many believed in him. Because in other places, as we'll just note very quickly, it says that they believed in him and yet uh, they did not truly, savingly, trust in Jesus. For example, in John 2, verses 23 through 25, we read, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. Verse 24 says, But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men, and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. So he did not commit himself to them, though it says they believed in him. It was a outward profession, a mere outward profession of faith in him. But there wasn't really any true change within their hearts. There wasn't really any um, trusting in Christ, being justified by faith alone, receiving uh, and having Christ's uh, righteousness imputed to them and, and, and uh, seeking his forgiveness. Likewise, a couple chapters after John 8, in John 10.42, we read, again, and many believed on him there. John 10.42. John 12.42. Again, we read, <clears throat> Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. So we find a number of occasions it's saying many believed on Jesus. But I would, I would submit to you that this was, in, in, not in every case obviously, but for the vast majority of those who, that it speaks here of, uh, that this was a mere intellectual faith that does not personally receive Jesus as, as one's own Savior and Lord. That type of saving faith that receives Jesus as Savior and Lord is spoken of in John 1.12, 1, 
But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. That is a true salvation. As many as received him, not simply intellectually believed that he was the Messiah, but received him as Savior, as their own Savior, to forgive them of their sins, and as their own Lord to submit unto him as Lord of all. Remember, many will profess Jesus as Lord on the last day. Many will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all of these things in your name? And Jesus will say unto them, Depart from me, ye who work iniquity, I never knew you. Remember in Matthew 13 that there were three kinds of soils that received the word of God and yet did not believe. Three kinds of soils which represent three different kinds of people that receive the word of God and yet none of them are saved. There was first of all the soil that was very hard by the wayside who did not understand the word of God that was given to them. Second, there was the stony soil uh, had a lot of rocks in it uh, and it says they received the word with joy but fell away when persecution came. And then there was a third soil, a thorny soil, filled with thorns, filled with weeds that choked out the seed. Uh, this was a soil represented those who fell away due to the cares of the world, due to the riches of the world, due to the influence of the world upon them. And they fell away from Christ because they loved the world more than they loved Christ and they fell away but then there was a fourth soil uh, which again received the word and bears fruit and that fruit endures and lasts and some bear 30 some bear 60 some a hundredfold so there's different degrees of fruitfulness but all bear fruit that lasts that's again an indication and evidence of those who truly believe that they have fruit that lasts, not simply a profession, and then when persecution comes or when the, the enticements of the world come, they fall away. Remember, many disciples fell away from the Lord because they considered his teachings to be too hard to follow in John 6, 66. He said, we can't handle these hard teachings. And it says, many disciples fell away, followed him no longer, walked with him no longer. Remember that uh, the demons believe in Jesus with a mere intellectual faith. James 2.19 says even the devils uh, believe in God and they tremble. When Jesus cast out the demons, they knew who Jesus was. They weren't denying that he was the Son of God. He was the Holy One of Israel. He's the Righteous One. They called him. They identified him in all of those ways. They just would not submit to him. They didn't obviously believe him. So true faith then is like a, an eye. 
like one of our natural eyes. When we look at an object, the eye isn't focusing upon the eye, the eye is focusing upon the object that is looking at. And so, um, likewise with faith. When we are looking to Christ with the eye of faith, we're not looking at the faith, we're looking the faith, uh, again, is, is taking us to behold Jesus as Savior, as Lord, as the one who forgives, as the one uh, who uh, grants us his righteousness, who gives us everlasting life, who justifies us. And so we're looking with the eye of faith at him alone. So true faith looks to Christ as Savior who can only save us from the guilt and the condemnation of sin and looks to Jesus as Lord to whom he or she willingly submits as king over every area of life. John 8.31 says, Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. So here's, here's the evidence that you're a disciple of Jesus Christ. Okay, if we for asking Jesus, Jesus, tell me, how do I know that I am a disciple of, of yours? Jesus says, if ye continue in my word. What does he mean by that? Well, if you persevere in believing and entrusting in his truth, his doctrine, his uh, worship that he's ordained, uh, his commandments, his promises, the gospel. If you continue to trust in him and his truth, and you continue to walk in obedience to it, and when you fall, which we all will fall, what do you do? Do you care that you've fallen? Or do you rather, when you realize you've fallen, do you... You go to the Lord and say, Lord, I've fallen away from your truth. Forgive me. Draw me back into that blessed place of communion with thee. And so the Lord here gives us that, that evidence. Again, not talking about perfection. None of us can keep God's word perfectly. Um, none of us are, again, uh, of perfect humanity as Jesus was and deity as Jesus was. And so we, we will fall, but do you care that you've fallen away? Do you repent? Are you sorry? Uh, do you turn from walking in disobedience and saying, Lord, forgive me, I want to walk in obedience to the commandments of God and thy truth. What a blessed assurance of God's work of grace in our life that we desire, we desire to walk and endeavor to walk in his truth. And so what we need to ask ourselves, is that true of me? Do I want to walk in faithfulness to his word? Do I desire to do so? Do I care 
Is it important to me? What's most important to me? Walking according to my own pleasures, walking according to what I want to do, or walking in obedience to God's will. Only Jesus gives us the, the desire, gives to us the willingness and the strength to walk in his ways out of love for him and to his glory. And that has to be. We're not simply talking about checking the boxes. Oh, I've done that and I've done that and I've done that. We're talking also about, and most importantly, that we are doing it out of love for him and to his glory because we delight in him as our Savior and as our Lord. Because if we're simply checking boxes, if we're simply doing things because um, it's commanded of us and that's the only reason we're doing it, then we're not doing it for the right reasons. And to not do it for the right reasons is not to uh, do it in a way of which God approves. Many, many people out there uh, are trying to live moral lives. But they're not, they're not doing it out of love for Jesus Christ. They're not doing it to the glory of God. And that's what makes a true Christian different than the so-called moral person out there that outwardly seems to be, again, uh, living a life that would be comparable perhaps to even a Christian who's seeking to obey God. We're doing it for a different reason. They're doing it for whatever reason they're doing it for, to maybe gain heaven, like the rich young ruler. Uh, maybe they're doing so uh, because uh, they have just this inner uh, desire to, uh, to be a good person. They have this inner desire to um, look uh, before others in a particular way, so they're doing it in a, in a sense for their own glory, for their uh, own pat on the back, um, to please this person or that person, but again, we're, we're doing it for a different reason. Verse 32, and we'll close on this. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Here is Christ's promise to all who receive him by faith alone, and who desire and endeavor to walk uh, in faithfulness to his truth. Their eyes will be open to know the truth and the truth shall set them free. Now, we hear that expression, you know, quoted by non-Christians and, you know, I mean, uh, just, again, it gets bandied about, but uh, again, this is talking about when it says, and, and you shall know the truth, meaning the truth of Jesus Christ, meaning the truth that he's revealed in his word, that truth, that only that truth has the power to set us free. Not just, uh, you know, today it's your truth, my truth, and, and, and everybody else has their own truth. That's, that's not what Jesus is talking about when he says, and the truth you shall know the truth meaning his truth his objective truth revealed in scripture and the truth shall set or make you free 
This is what Jesus was teaching back in John 7, 17 as well, where you, you recall the Lord said, if any man will do his will, he shall know the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. Notice Jesus says, if any man will do his will, he shall know the doctrine. Um, this is, uh, the Lord Jesus is saying, basically, it's not enough for you just to be curious about um, uh, the truth, and God will just reveal to you the truth because you're curious about it, but are you willing to do it for the right reasons? If you're willing to do the will of God for the right reasons, out of love for the Lord, to the glory of God, to the benefit and edification of, of those around you, then the Lord says you'll know of the doctrine, whether it's of God or whether it's of man. Psalmist says, in thy light we shall see light. As we are walking in the light of God, in his truth, seeking to be obedient, that which we know we're following, he promises that we will have greater understanding of the truth as we are walking in the truth. But if we know the truth and we're not walking in the truth, there's a darkness that settles over our minds. The truth is hidden from us. God's will, if we have a, an area that we're saying, Lord, what is, what is thy will in this particular area? And concerning this doctrine, concerning this teaching, what is thy truth? Well, we can't expect God to tell us and to reveal to us what his truth is if we're not willing to walk in the truth that we already know that he has shown us and opened our minds and given us illumination to understand. Uh, why should he reveal to us his will in further areas if we're not even interested or not following and doing his will in the areas that we know of? We're only compounding the aggravation of our sin we want to know more of God's will and yet are not walking in obedience to his will in the areas we know of. And so we need to, again, be asking ourselves, am I desiring and seeking to walk in God's revealed will that I already know? How does the truth make us free? close on this thought. How does the truth make us free? Well, the truth makes us free and setting us free from the guilt, the condemnation, and the dominion of sin in our lives. The truth that God has revealed to us sets us free from the control of sin in our life. Being, being the servants of sin the truth sets us free to become the servants of righteousness. It sets us free to become the servants of God rather than to be the servants of wickedness and evil and ungodliness, our own pleasures, what we want. That's not, according to the Bible, that's not freedom. That's the worldly definition of freedom, doing whatever you want to do. But that's not the biblical definition of freedom. 
the biblical definition of freedom is doing what God wants you to do. Being able to do what God wants you to do. That's true freedom. Because we have to look at the paradigm of freedom. Is God himself? Is God free? Yeah, God's absolutely free. Does God sin? No. God has a holy, a holy nature, a righteous nature. He doesn't sin. He never sins. He cannot sin. And so true freedom is patterned after God's freedom. That is, true freedom is doing the will of God. Natural man does not want, again, true freedom. They want a false freedom. They want to live in their sexual immorality, blaspheme God, watch on television or on the computer, whatever they want to watch. That's not true freedom. That's simply being in bondage to your own desires. But true freedom is, again, what does God want me to watch? What does God want me to look upon? What is God, because God cares about all these things. What does God want me to listen to by way of music? What is God, again, the, that's, a, that's the freedom that we desire as Christians. Okay, that's true freedom. It's doing what God, what pleases God. Obeying his commandments out of a loving and a thankful heart for his salvation and to his glory. Uh, serving ourselves, dear ones, as I close, is bondage that will lead to our destruction. It's not true freedom. It's a bondage that will lead to our destruction. But serving God, being his servant, is true freedom that leads to everlasting life. Now this is a paradox, and there are many paradoxes in the scripture. Just as we die, that we might live. A paradox, we die to ourselves that we might live uh, to the glory of God. And just as we lose our life in order that we might find our life, just as we lose this, this old sinful natural man that we might find that true um, renewed man, so we serve that we might be set free. We serve God that we might be truly set free. Again, these are paradoxes, but they're all true in God's word. So I leave that with you to meditate upon, to dwell upon. And so let's uh, ask the Lord's blessing upon our having considered his word this evening, that he would bless it to our, our minds, our hearts. Please stand. Our glorious Father, how we thank thee for thy word, for it is truth. And Lord, uh, those who know thee, truly know thee, those who truly trust in thee, do desire to walk in thy ways, do uh, receive indeed a freedom, a glorious freedom, uh, to be conformed to Christ's image, to delight in doing thy will. Lord, we pray that thou would give to us, as we grow in Christ, uh, more and more of this delight. 
delight is something like every other grace that we must grow in. Uh, we don't have the full delight uh, in uh, when we first become Christians that we will as we continue to grow in Christ and learn of Christ, greater delight in doing his will. But Lord, let us not backslide. Let us not fall back in our delight. We thank thee, our God, for thy blessed spirit that never leaves us and never forsakes us, that is with us to apply thy truth to our hearts and minds. So do so now. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Any, any questions uh, from the study this evening? Okay, well, thank you all for joining us. Lord, be with you the remainder of this week.